Hello and welcome to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Our topic today is water. It is vital and precious, yet we tend to take it for granted. After all, just turn on the tap and it comes pouring out. It does now, but unless we recognize and deal with the drought and the significant population growth in Texas and in the Hill Country, our taps may one day be running dry. The good news is that there are things each of us can do to conserve water. And today we'll have a chance to learn what the problems are and what you can do to help. We'll hear from Dr. Andy Sansom at Texas State University, who has spent his life working on issues related to conservation of precious natural resources, including water. I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Sansom, who is Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University. We're here to talk about the issue of water in the Hill Country, and I'd like you to start just by giving us a little more background on yourself. Absolutely. First of all, call me Andy. I've been associated one way or another with water for as long as I can remember. Um, I grew up on a creek uh, where I was able to get in a boat that my dad and I built and paddle to the Gulf of Mexico. I, I worked for a number of years as a lifeguard in a public swimming pool, and I came here to what we then called Aquarina Springs many times as a, as a child. So water has been part of who I am. Uh, most of my adult life I've been involved in conservation of fish and wildlife, of the landscape and the rivers and streams of our state. And the one thing that uh, you can't miss about that is that everything is tied back to water in some way. Water is the essential for all of life. I worked for a number of years for the Nature Conservancy. And then I worked uh, before I came to Texas State University for Texas Parks and Wildlife. And almost every issue, whether it was recreation, whether it was uh, protection of the landscape, fisheries, wildlife, always somehow or another led me back to water. And so I came here to work here at the Spring Lake in 2002 because I really, the, my years at Parks and Wildlife convinced me that water would be the most critical natural resource facing the next generation of Texans, and that has proven to have been true. Tell me, in terms of the area that we're in, which is generally known as the Hill Country, if you could, if you could start out with a sort of a description of what resources we have in this area, in terms of rivers, lakes, uh, streams, springs, all those, all the the things that we kind of enjoy and most of us probably take for granted. If you could s sort of set the stage for this area. Well, I think if you had to pick one aspect of the Hill Country, uh, other than its unique culture, that distinguishes it, and certainly that most Texans, no matter where they live, would point to as being the most significant aspect of the hill country, it would be the springs and the clear running streams. And so when you think about the fact that today uh, the 
parts of the Hill Country, particularly Hayes County, are among the fastest growing parts of the United States. There's never been a time when those resources which distinguish the Hill Country have been more at risk than today, such that I'm frankly alarmed about it. I mean, I, if, if you ask me what issues really frighten you about the future, I think at the top of my list would be the fact that the Hill Country as we know it will be fundamentally changed, perhaps for the worst, unless we are able to do something about it. What is it that threatens this area in terms of water or the landscape? First, growth, uh, just completely unrestrained growth, particularly as you move westward from the I-35 corridor. Second, and a function of that growth, or partially, is the incredible number of wells that have been drilled in the Hill Country, say, over the last generation. Um, and then thirdly, the fact that the climate is changing, whether or not it is a, an episodic drought that will end sometime soon, or whether or not this is a condition that is going to be with us for a long time, whether or not it is human uh, induced or whether or not it's a natural cycle, the climate is changing and it is, and it is causing a, an inordinate additional amount of stress on our, on our hydrologic system in the hill country. So in what ways uh, do we see the, the, this different Well, I think climate? the most fundamental way is that even though in recent months we've had sufficient area rains to make the hill country look pretty good. If you drive out to uh, beyond uh, Dripping Springs into the in Johnson City, Fredericksburg, Stonewall area, it looks absolutely gorgeous. It's green and lush and the wildflowers are blooming, but we're not getting sufficient rain to adequately recharge our aquifers or replenish our lakes. And so that basic fundamental water supply has not been improved even though the country looks like uh, we're getting plenty of rain. So, so the uh, ongoing drought is probably the biggest. There was issue a study. Is... Study um, ongoing drought is a is a serious issue. There was a study that was released by Cornell University within the last month that indicated that there was about a sixty to eighty percent probability that this current drought would end in a decade, which is about the length of the previous drought of record. But that study also said that there was about a 30 to 50% probability that it would last for a generation. And so I, I think the, the big thing for us to be mindful of is that we can't assume that this is gonna be over anytime soon. We have to base our planning on a worst-case scenario, which is that it could last for many years, which I fervently hope is not the case, but I don't think we can afford not to, not to at least account for uh, this being a very long and sustained drought. Are there other factors related to climate that are also involved in this issue? Well, is that the main? It, it, it seems like, and this is only anecdotal, but it appears, and you'll find some, some indications in the literature, that the, the sort of the deserts of the western United States are moving eastward, that the likelihood is that in the 
Hayes County, Bear County, Travis County area that we will be more like San Angelo uh, in the years ahead. That the that and, and you can experience this by the fact that, for example, I I think all of us are uh, have taken note of the fact that the nights are cooler, but that it still gets up to eighty or ninety degrees in the daytime, and that's more like Santa Fe, you know, than Austin. And so you see little indicators like that that suggest that um, something is going on. Another, I mean, another one that is obviously having an impact is the fact that when I was a, a child living up on the living on the Gulf Coast, we would have eight or so hurricanes every single year during hurricane season. Now we sometimes we get none, and those hurricanes that do form in the Atlantic and the Pacific go up the coastlines of California and the East Coast rather than coming into the Gulf of Mexico. And that clearly is having a profound impact on our overall uh, hydrologic condition in the, in, the, in the Gulf states, including Texas. That is another fundamental change that's taken place. There's two more. One is that much of the water in the Rio Grande in Texas comes out of Mexico. And there's been a significant... Um, number of reservoirs built on the Concho River which have basically shut down the Rio Grande below uh, below this, the town of Presidio. The other thing that's changed that we that we really um, sometimes overlook is that when Texas experienced the what we have traditionally called the drought of record which was between about 1947 and 1957 everybody lived in a small town or they lived on a farm or their dad worked in a feed store. And somehow or another, most of the people in the state were tied to rural life or agriculture. And so when we had a drought, everybody felt it personally in their lives. And today that's not the case. Our children can go in the bathroom and flush the toilet or turn on the tap in the kitchen. And as long as the water comes out, there's an assumption that everything's okay. And I think that's a cultural sea change from what we what, from the society that uh, w was present during the last major drought. Earlier you mentioned the drilling of wells. Can we talk about that and how that affects water? Well, particularly in a part of the, in a state where after the drought of the 1950s, we built some 214 major reservoirs as a response to the drought. And they served us well, you know, for 50 years or so. Well, there's no longer enough water in those reservoirs to serve the burgeoning growth in the state. It's almost impossible to build a reservoir today because of many factors, uh, resistance of landowners to eminent domain, uh, various kinds of environmental constraints. So we can't depend on surface water anymore like we did for the, for the last generation. So that means we've increasingly moved the groundwater as a source of supply. I believe that currently the majority of our water supply in Texas comes from groundwater. It's barely over 50%, but it is over 50% and it's growing. And so what that's done is that it's placed unprecedented de uh, demands on our aquifers. And we feel that most in the hill country because there's such a direct connection between groundwater and surface water, at least hydrologically. But 
from a legal standpoint, there's no connection to speak of. And so that presents us with a really awful management issue going into the the future in that we literally treat groundwater and surface water in Texas as if they were different substances. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that and or what those distinctions are between the management of ground and surface water. Well, first let's let's look at a at a graphic example particularly for listeners that are in the in the immediate, you know, Wimberley Valley area. The Blanco, which we all cross almost every day, starts out in Kendall County, south of Fredericksburg, just below the Gillespie County line. It flows southeastward through Blanco County, and, and before it gets to Hayes County, virtually all of the flow of the Blanco goes back into the ground. It literally goes from the riverbed back into the aquifer. It flows underground on into Hayes County and comes back up at Jacob's Well, and there's other springs on the Blanco as well, but the bulk of it comes back up out of Jacob's Well. It, it rejoins the surface, and it flows down Cypress Creek through the city of Wimberley and back into the Blanco. If you tried to get a permit to get any significant amount of water out of the Blanco, it would be denied because it's already been overcommitted. But if you wanted to go up above Jacob's Well and drill a hole in the ground, you can take just about as much of it as your man or woman enough to pump with hardly any regulation, and yet it's the same water. We have a surface water allocation system that has its origins when we were a colony of Spain. And that is the, the governance in Texas with respect to surface water has always been based on the premise that it belongs to the public. And therefore, the public authorities, whether they be the Crown of Spain, the Government of Mexico, the Republic of Texas, or the state, has then allocated its use by permit to citizens. Groundwater, on the other hand, the courts have repeatedly ruled that groundwater is the property of the owner of the surface. And so, therefore, it has declared that it is private property. So we're now in a situation where the state has told two different parties that the same water belongs to them. And for me, that is the most unsustainable aspect of our water uh, policy is, is the fact that... Uh, the only thing that's going to bring us through this, I think, is a lot of major and expensive litigation. As interest downstream, let's say in down the Guadalupe in Seguin or Victoria, end up suing landowners in the hill country because they have both been given title by the state to the same water. Have we seen any evidence of that yet? We're seeing some indication of that kind of dispute over in the Colorado Basin because there are so many efforts underway to move groundwater out of the Colorado Basin and over this way. And so interest downstream in Columbus and LaGrange and that area have begun to become alarmed that the groundwater withdrawals above them will infect the flow of the river. So I think that's where you'll see it first. 
I know that there, there were stories some time ago, I'm not sure exactly when, about people's home wells running dry. And uh, I know I've heard stories, not in this area, but of, of counties and pla cities where literally they don't have water you know, availability coming out of their taps anymore. Is that something we can look forward to? Or? I, I don't think there's any question about it. I, um, I have not talked to a landowner in the last couple of years that has been on their land, let's say between Wimberley and Comfort, Fredericksburg, that area, that has not experienced the need to, to very, very costly deepen their wells because they have continually had to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's a real hardship on a, on a residence. I mean, I, I looked at drilling a well in the Stonewall area this year, and, it's, and it runs about $20 a foot to drill. So if you've got to drop your well 200 feet, you know, just to get water, multiply that times $20, and it's not cheap. Uh, I know of a landowner in the Comfort area that has lived on that whose family has lived on the same piece of land for like five generations and and they never had to deepen their well at all until about 10 years ago and since then they've had to do it like three times in order to because of the declining groundwater and of course in the immediate Hayes County area we we saw in 2011 a lot of residential wells completely stopped functioning at all, and rather than pay the expense of going deeper, people just began to import water in trucks. Um, I, 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 one of my indicators is driving along the road from Blanco to Wimberley and seeing the increasing number of signs pop up that advertise that they will truck in water to your home. And, and, you know, 25 or so years ago, that would have just been un inconceivable that you would have had to have a truck deliver your household water, much less build a reservoir in your garage or somewhere to hold it. But there's more and more of that taking place. If we can kind of turn to trying to figure out what the average person can do in order to prevent this kind of situation from happening, um, are there things that... Uh, cities, for one thing, are doing to conserve, to build alternate sources of water, um, rainwater collection, all these different possible, helpful, maybe not solutions, but things that might help? Well, the majority of water is used for irrigation, whether it's agricultural irrigation for the planting of rice or growing hay or, or, or watering in St. Augustine lawn. And frankly, much of that does not seem to me to be long-term as sustainable. Um, you know, I hate, to, I hate to think of the fact that we would be, that, that at some point in time we might not have a rice industry in Texas, but frankly, it seems like that it's very difficult to justify a practice where you put hundreds of acre feet of water to flood a field. It's just very inefficient. At the same time, it's also... Um, going to require a cultural shift for people to understand that the end of the world is not having your lawn go brown, you know, during parts of the year. I mean, it just, 
so a lot of it is behavioral and it has to do with irrigation. There are other measures. There are communities within the listening audience of this program which have lost as much as 50% of all of the water in their system just because they haven't maintained the water mains in the, in the municipal distribution system. 50%. The average water loss in Texas is somewhere between 15 and 25% just because water mains are not maintained. And so, so there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in this. San Antonio, which in my judgment is kind of the poster child for doing it right, bought and gave away 300,000 water-conserving toilets, just gave them to people, and that ended up producing a tremendous amount of water which they could otherwise distribute to new customers, and, and, but in the, in the process lowering the overall per capita consumption. San Antonio has lowered uh, its consumption of water by 40% per capita and still prospered. San Antonio has grown by probably a million and a half citizens over the last 20 years, and yet its overall consumption of water has been flat. So it can be done, um, but it takes, um, uh, it takes a, um, a willingness to pay. Uh, we're going to have to pay more for water. Um, <clears throat> we, 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 we've got to remember that water is the one substance that's essential for any plant or animal to, to survive. And so therefore we've got to make sure, just from the standpoint of justice, that, that the average family has enough water for their sanitation, their cooking needs. But when you start thinking about having a swimming pool in your backyard, or watering St. Augustine, then you ought to be willing to pay for that. And I think what you'll see is a pretty uh, aggressive uh, tiered pricing system that makes sure that the average family has enough water for their basic needs, but when they start using it for washing their cars or the other those sort of uh, non-essential purposes, then they should be willing to pay considerably more for it. One of the reasons why we're in this dilemma is because we have um, treated water as if it were something that we should get at a, at a very low or, or almost minimal cost, and, and that's really not appropriate when you consider its value to us. What about rainwater collection? Rainwater collection is a part of the solution, um, and it's, more, um, it's now being applied more in a situation where people do not have an alternative, where their wells are going dry or they really are, are desperate. Desperate, perhaps not the, quite the right word, but it's an urgent issue. Uh, it's not economical, which I think is the reason it's being held back. I mean, it's not more fully uh, applied. I think the average cost of a rainwater collection system in an average residence is about $36,000. And so it takes a while to recover that kind of expenditure. But if you live in a rural area and you're on a well and you have to go back every few years and spend $10,000, you know, deepening your well, then it starts to get economic. Um, I think that some of the, 
some of the solution may be ultimately to try to, for example, develop rainwater collection on a subdivision scale so that when a new subdivision goes in, rainwater is a collective uh, investment and therefore the, the cost per unit goes down. So we'll, I think we'll see some of that kind of approach. Um, but meanwhile, as this drought continues to get worse and worse, uh, we'll, we're going to see more rainwater collection, and I'm very much in favor of it. I, I, I have close colleagues that, that are entirely on rainwater now, and, and they're, they're doing fine, even through this drought. Is this something that, and I don't know if San Antonio does this, but uh, where you encourage businesses and, you know, big organizations like Texas State University to engage in what rainwater collection, things yeah, like that? Yes. There are institutional barriers that, that, and some of them are bureaucratic and some of them are real. Uh, one concern traditionally within municipal uh, water systems has been contamination because rainwater collects bacteria and other substances on the way down and so there's been a reluctance among municipal water providers to to mingle rainwater with a municipal water system and that's that's a legitimate issue but it's one that can be overcome the others are largely bureaucratic um, I can tell you that I'm familiar with an institution, which I won't name, that has resisted, you know, having rainwater collection employed on an extensive basis because of resistance to having tanks, you know, just from an aesthetic standpoint. Well, to me, that's dumb. You know, they can be designed so they're kind of pretty attractive, I think. The good news is that there are also institutions that see it as a, as a shrewd public relations act to actually have rainwater and I would point to the Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin it has a fabulous rainwater collection system and it's part of the aesthetic of the facility so so it can be done in a way that it's not only acceptable aesthetically but it's but it's uh, additive to the aesthetics and and also along the same lines things like uh, landscape you know I mean where you see large organizations with acres of grass and so on and so forth. Those are things, it seems like, also that could be altered. For sure, for sure. And uh, another one that, that, that's sort of a corollary to rainwater collection is you see more and more um, collection of air conditioning condensate. You know, when you, when, you, when you consider an air conditioner, whether it's a residential one or a big building, it produces a tremendous amount of condensation. Well, you see more and more that that's being captured and then particularly used for landscape irrigation and those kind of things. We have some condensate collection systems in place here on the Texas State campus where none of that condensate is allowed to evaporate. It goes back into the collection system and then it's distributed on the campus for irrigation. Anything else I should be asking you about? You asked me about? what the average person could yeah. do. Yeah, let's And there's a couple that. of other things that come to mind. Okay. No matter what people do each day, whether or not we're lawyers or teachers or accountants or, you know, what it is we do in our daily lives, almost everyone can find an opportunity during the course of the year to introduce a child to water in some way 
to take them to Jacob's Well or Blue Hole or introduce them to that kind of natural resource, which first and foremost is a source of inspiration to them, as it was for me. Now that you know more, please take every opportunity you have to conserve water. Let that lawn go brown. Take short showers. Turn off the water while washing dishes or brushing teeth. Every little thing helps. Consider rainwater collection, at least for the garden. And talk to young people, to your children, about the importance of appreciating and conserving water. That's all for Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan.